glad to see you all this morning. Is everyone doing okay? Yes. We have several folks who are out with sickness. We have folks who are traveling. Speaking of which, Janine and I will be headed for Cincinnati tomorrow. And we will be back sometime Thursday night or Friday. So Steve will be here this Wednesday to do the midweek teaching for us. So come out and support Steve if you would. You can turn in the book of Mark to Mark chapter 12. We didn't quite finish Mark chapter 12. We will get there eventually. When I read through the Bible... I look for repetitive themes because I think if the word of God repeats things, you ought to pay attention, which is why I have pointed out to you many, many times through the years that the most consistently named sin in the Bible is pride. That should be drilled into your memories by now because I've said it so often. One of the characteristics of God that you see from the very, very beginning and all the way through even to the book of Revelation, one of the things you see is sacrifice. God requires sacrifice. From the very beginning of the book of Genesis, as soon as there is a sinner, as soon as Adam and Eve rebel, we read that God covered them in animal skins. That would have required a sacrifice. When Noah built the ark, he was told to take two of every creature, but then seven of a few different animals, the clean animals, the animals that could be used for sacrifice. And as soon as Noah got to dry land, what's the first thing he did? He built an altar and he sacrificed. You see this theme continually through the Bible. The whole point and reason for the tabernacle in the wilderness was for the sacrifices as part of the worship of God. God told Moses specifically how the tabernacle was to be built, how the altar was to be built, and then what they were to do with each of the individual sacrifices. When they got to Mount Sinai, God laid out a whole series of sacrifices that Israel was required to perform. Everything from sin sacrifices to bringing the first of their wine and the first of their grain to even burnt offerings that were told sent a sweet savor into the nostrils of God. Those were sacrifices of the very best thing you had. Animals with no spot or any blemish. The animals that would be good for breeding and good for your flocks. Those are the ones you had to bring to God kill and burn for no other reason than the glory of God. Because God just kept expecting that his people would so appreciate his presence in their company that they would sacrifice to him as recognition that he is the provider of absolutely everything they have in their life. And so they were required to bring the best and the first fruit and their offerings. And then after they had brought all of that, they could then, if they chose to, bring a votive offering. They could bring even more. In fact, God was so determined that his people were going to sacrifice to him 
that he made sure that the people of Israel who were just slaves, they don't own anything. So God told them through Moses to borrow from all their Egyptian neighbors, earrings, gold, fabrics, everything they could get off them. And then God helped them leave town, and then God drowned their debtors. This is a pretty good plan. <laughs> but then he takes them out into the wilderness for 40 years where all that gold they've collected. And by the way, it's a bunch of gold. It's enough that while Moses is on Mount Sinai, they're down there making a golden calf. Don't miss that it's gold. And then uh, God, when he gives the instructions to Moses about building the tabernacle in the wilderness, he requires all this gold furniture. And he tells Moses to take up a collection. It's the only place in the Bible that you ever find anyone in the Bible take a collection and end up saying, okay, stop now, that's enough. You're good, we have enough. How did a couple million slaves in the desert come up with so much gold that God could require golden furniture and then say, okay, you've brought enough. It's because God provided before they left Egypt because God knew that he was going to require sacrifice from them once they got out into the wilderness. And then after the furniture was all created, then the sacrifice of the animals began. And the sacrifice of grain when they got into the land of milk and honey. And the sacrifice of the first fruit of their wine. And then the weekly sacrifices. And the new moon sacrifices. And then three times a year the feasts and those sacrifices. On top of all the multiple tithes that they had to give. And while the tithes were for the provision of the widows and the fatherless and the Levites... The sacrificing was to God. The sacrificing just continued and continued. The priest and the Levites could eat from the sacrifices, but first they had to be sacrificed to God. Now, God to be God has no needs. In fact, he says, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. He even says sort of mockingly, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Because you add nothing to God. So then why does he keep requiring that people bring him stuff? It doesn't enrich him. It doesn't make him any better. So what is the purpose of all this sacrificing that's going on? That sacrificing, by the way, not only permeates the Old Testament all the way up to the time of Jesus, during the time that Solomon's temple is in full-fledged daily sacrificing all the way through the rebuilding of the temple during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra rediscovers the law, and what do they do right away? They start sacrificing again. And then into Herod's temple, there's the sacrificing, the sacrificing going on. Why? What is God getting out of that? Why does God require that from his people? At this point, we're just talking about Israel. Why does God require that Israel would sacrifice constantly, knowing that it doesn't improve him or enrich him at all because he already owns everything and he's perfectly sufficient within himself? He needs nothing from you. Why would he require sacrifices? Well, the obvious answer is, since it doesn't improve him, 
It has something to do with you. It had something to do with Israel and the necessity that they constantly bring the best of what they had and burn it for God's glory so that they recognized that God was in their midst, God was in their presence, and God was their provider, so much so that they had to bring the best of what God had provided for them and burn it to send that sweet savor up into the nostrils of God. In other words, giving in the Bible, sacrificing in the Bible, isn't for God's improvement. It's certainly for his worship and his glory, but it's because his people need to learn how to sacrifice. Well, you get into the New Testament. Does the sacrificing stop? Tom, if you would, turn to the book of Hebrews just for a moment. Go to Hebrews 13, 16. Paul, writing to uh, the Philippians, writes that the gift that was brought by Epaphroditus to Paul there in Philippi, that their sacrifice brought a sweet savor into the nostrils of God. In other words, their gift of support to Paul is like the sweet savor offering of the Old Testament. And what was the sweet savor offering in the Old Testament? The sweet savor offering was bringing the best of what you had, destroying it for God's glory. And Paul picked that up and said, when you give to the ongoing work of the ministry... That is a sacrifice that sends a pleasing odor into the nostrils of God. The writer of Hebrews picks up that idea and says that God is actually well pleased with our sacrifices. Tom will read that for us. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So the New Testament also talks about sacrifice. The Old Testament, you see sacrifice constantly. You get into the New Testament, and giving to the church is also referred to as sacrifice. Giving to each other, also referred to as sacrifice. Okay, let's define the word now. Let's talk about what sacrifice is. If you're making about $100,000 a year, and you tip somebody a dollar, That's not a sacrifice. That didn't cost you anything. King David, when he was going to sacrifice to God, wanted to buy a plot of land, and the owner wanted to just give it to him. He was the king, and David ended up saying, should I sacrifice to God something that cost me nothing? If it costs you nothing, it's not sacrifice. If it doesn't crimp your style a little bit, It's not sacrifice. If I've got $1,000 in my wallet and I give you a dollar, that changes my life not at all. It takes sacrifice. It takes something that costs you something. I think that's why the sweet savor offering was taking the best of what you had and sacrificing it, giving it up for the glory of God, for the purpose of Showing God that you recognize the goodness of his presence in your life. So now let's talk about that. God is in your life. God has given you his word. God has sent his son. God has given you eternal promises of salvation. God has sacrificed his son 
for the purpose of redeeming you from your sinfulness so that by grace you have the promise of eternal life with God. Now the question is, what's that worth to you? Is it worth a buck out of a thousand? Is it worth as much as a good pair of shoes? Is it worth as much as a good dinner? What's it really worth to you? Well, I think that's a fair question because God keeps using that word sacrifice. He sacrificed for you. He sacrificed his son. His son sacrificed his life. The giving doesn't stop when it gets to you. The sacrificing doesn't stop when it gets to you. He did all that for you. Therefore, he expects of you that you will sacrifice in return. By the way, this is just introduction to what we're about to read from Mark. Because Jesus is about to watch a woman sacrifice. And 2,000 years later, we're still reading about her. And Jesus takes the time to say, everybody else was giving out of their abundance. Now, one of the reasons through the years that I think I've been a little reticent to talk about sacrifice and money is because you can turn on the TV, the radio, the Internet any day, and you will find preachers, so-called, standing on their platforms that are like a monument to their wealth. And they're showing off the amount of money they've got. And then while standing in that ostentatious wealth, they will then tell you that they need your money as well. That is, I think, criminal. And so I've always tried to be very, very careful to give the gospel away for free, to give the things that are on the Internet away for free, to preach the gospel freely to anybody. But part of the gospel and part of Bible teaching is that you also learn to properly give. And I've been a little reticent through the years to say that simply because I don't want you to think that I'm just another preacher trying to pick your pocket. But I'm also doing you a disservice if I don't teach you to give. I don't know what anybody in this church gives. I don't know what anybody on the Internet gives. But I know the general state of the financial health of GCA. Tom and I talk about it. And we have a good sense of where we're at financially. And I know that for the 17 years that we've been here, I have desired, I have wanted, that we build a building that's a little more conducive so that people don't have to sit way back there in the dark, in the cave. Hi, cave people. Hi. (laughs) But for these 17 years that we've wanted to do that, we have the land to do it. We've just never been able to do it. And yet, I go on the Internet And I see that there are lots and lots of people listening. There are a lot of people that come to our website. I spoke to a fellow a couple weeks ago out in California who began the conversation with me by saying, you are really popular on the Internet. I said, yeah, I don't even want to think about that. I don't even want to know that. But here's what the Bible says. All these folks on the internet that are listening, here's what the Bible tells you. The Bible says that those of you who are taught in the word 
should share materially with the one who taught you in all good things. That's basic Bible teaching. You that are taught in the word, that'd be pretty much everybody in the sound of my voice. If you've actually learned something from GCA, if you've actually come back to our website again because you realize that you have learned something from GCA, then you qualify as the ones who have been taught in the word, which means the rest of that statement is true for you. You also then should share materially with the one who teaches in all good things. Yet, I know, despite the fact that there are many, many people listening to us, that there's only a very small handful of people who keep us going. And we're not, according to everything we've read in the Bible and everything I've said to you this morning, we're not supposed to just get by. Because the requirement on you is, if God is in your presence, if Christ has been sacrificed for you, the requirement for you is that you sacrifice as well. And your sacrifice, that very word, implies that it's going to make you a little uncomfortable. In other words, it's going to be a little more than you would comfortably do. That's the word. Now, I don't expect people to automatically get into weekly sacrificing but I certainly do think that every so often you certainly ought to sacrifice for the good and the glory of God let me give you a quick example I can only use myself as an example but when I was part of the church out in Los Angeles I took a a survey of everything I have and I decided what was the most precious thing I had in terms of monetary value and in terms of emotional value and it turned out that for me both monetarily and emotionally it was something my father had given me it had a great deal of value to me so I gave it away I gave it to the church for the reason for the sole purpose because I wanted God to see it I wanted God to know that I was willing to take the most precious thing I had and give it away for his glory. Another quick example, because this, I think, will help you. So I'm sitting in San Francisco one day at my apartment. I have a total of $32 in my checkbook. That's all the money I have in the world, 32 bucks. But I had just recently heard the proof of the resurrection. And I had just walked out, you know the story, walked out into the garden by my apartment, looked up at the sky and said, checkmate, you win. I wanted to show God that he really did win. So I walked inside, looked at my checkbook, 32 big dollars. I wrote a check for $32 and I sent it to my friend who was a pastor of a local Nazarene church. And I said to myself, If I'm going down, I'm going down swinging. And I wrote the check. I was flat broke at that point, but I thought, well, that's sacrifice. That's what I did. Now, you might ask, what happened? Well, that was 40 years ago, and I'm still here. And I haven't ever missed a meal. So God will take care of you. God will provide for you. 
I didn't end up sleeping on the streets. I didn't have bill collectors knocking at my door. God completely provided for me and in fact provided for me in such a miraculous way that it stunned even me. But I'm not going to tell you about that at this moment because I don't want you to start thinking that you should give to get. You should give for the glory of God because that's what sacrifice is. If you gave and then got more back, that's not sacrifice. That's investment. So you give for the glory of God. Do you get that? Yes, sir. And if you've been taught by GCA, you owe GCA. It's just that simple. And that's what the Bible says. And people say, I believe the Bible. I believe the Bible. I'm a biblical Christian. I believe the Bible. I try to live by the Bible. Okay, then do that. Then sacrifice for the glory of God and give to keep the ministry going and pay because you've been taught. That's what the Bible says. It's real, real simple. Okay, that was all introduction to the fact that Jesus is going to sit at the treasury of the temple. Jesus was not afraid to talk about money. Jesus talked about money a lot. And Jesus was willing to sit in the temple and watch people give. And then he saw a woman give nothing. nothing virtually nothing. But it was all she had. She gave away what little she had. And Jesus said she gave more than everybody else. Not monetarily. What does that tell you? It tells you that it doesn't matter how big your gift is. It matters that you give it. It matters that you give out of what you have, not what you don't have. I've heard people through the years say to me, I would. I would give, Jim. I would, but I can't afford it. But if I ever hit the lottery, then I'll, I'll definitely be giving, you know. Someday I'm going to give. I'm going to get a better job. Someday my financial situation is going to change, and then I'm going to give. Someday I'm going to give. No, you won't. If you won't do it now, you're never going to do it. But it doesn't matter the size of the gift, and it doesn't matter if you can't afford it. Isn't that what sacrifice is all about? This woman sacrificed, and Jesus commemorated her. And I think that's important. So let's read it. Verse 41 of chapter 12. And he, Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and began watching how the multitude were putting money into the treasury. That means Jesus just sat there and watched people give. He knows everybody's heart. He knows what's in everybody. And importantly, he knows what he's given everybody. He knows what everybody has. So therefore, he's able to call them out because many rich people were putting in large sums. Jesus talked about those who give and blow a trumpet before they do their giving to make sure other people see it. And then he says, they've got their reward. They're going to get nothing from God. God's not honored by that. They already got 
other people looking at them, watching them, praising them for the size gift they're giving. After all, if somebody walked in here right now, say Micah walked in right now, and then blew a big trumpet before putting something in the box, you might not even want to, but you're going to instantly look at him. Because you're going to go, what's the trumpet about? Don't do that. No, no trumpets here. So he's watching the people putting in large sums of money, but they're also rich people. So the large sum of money doesn't really make a dent. They've got plenty to live on. Look, a million dollars is a lot of money, right? million dollars, that's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. If Mark Zuckerberg gave GCA a million dollars, I don't think it's going to happen. If he gave us a million dollars, we'd be rich. It wouldn't even put a dent in him. He wouldn't even feel it. It would change absolutely nothing about his life. There'd be no sacrifice involved. You get it? So he's watching rich people putting in large sums. And verse 42 says, And a poor widow came and put in two copper coins, which amounts to a cent. It took her two copper coins just to make a penny. The widow came with her two copper coins, which is just a penny. And he took the time to call his disciples to him. He'd been sitting there watching, just watching people bring their money, put it in the treasury at the temple. This is what they're required to do. Just bring your gifts, bring your tithes, bring your offerings, bring your stuff to the temple, give your money. Get. And he's sitting watching, and this woman catches his attention, and he calls his disciples over because this is a real teachable moment. And he says, truly, I say to you, whenever he says that, amen, amen, truly, truly, I'm telling you something important. Pay attention. Truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. So the contrast that Mark wants you to see is that people were putting in large sums. She put in a penny. Jesus, in the God economy, says that she put in more than all those that put in a large sum. Why? Because their large sums didn't hurt them at all. There was no sacrifice involved. But she, verse 44, for they all put in out of their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything she owned all that she had to live on. How was she going to get by? How was she going to get through another day? God had to provide for her. And she was so confident in God's provision that she was willing to take the very last of what she had and put it in the treasury, give it to God. That is genuine sacrifice. It cost her. It took something from her. And then we read nothing more about her. We don't know what happened to her. But we have to assume that God took care of her. God provided for her. She had that kind of confidence and that kind of faith in God. And in God's economy, 
that little bit she gave was much more than what all the rich people gave. Now, is Jim at this moment saying, before you leave here, you need to cough up absolutely everything you have so that you're completely broke? While I'm asking that question, Jennifer is nodding her head. (laughs) No, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that Jesus took the time to point this woman out to his disciples because her sacrifice was so genuine and so great. And the people who were just giving out of their surplus got no comment from Jesus at all. He just watched them doing it because that was what they were supposed to do. Now, in my own life, I have found that sacrificing for God's glory, not constantly, I'm not saying you have to be constantly sacrificing, constantly broke, but making it a regular part of your life to go beyond what you're capable of doing is really good for you. Because not only does it show God that you're willing to glorify him and the gift of him in your life, but it also, you will find, increases your faith and your confidence because now you have to rest on God to keep you going. And that's a really good place to be. Living by faith is much more satisfying than living by your own work and your own hands. Chapter 13. Collectively, everybody go, whoo! Good, we're off that one. Man, for a minute there, Jim almost had me talked into sacrificially giving. Whew, that was close. I'm glad we're at chapter 13. (laughs) Chapter 13 is Mark's version of Matthew 24. Mark 13 couldn't be more diametrically opposed to what I've been talking about all morning because suddenly it's going to get real eschatological. Now, clearly at the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus is talking about the events that did take place in Jerusalem in 70 AD. Because the conversation is going to start with Jesus saying that the temple is going to be completely knocked down. Not one stone left on another. And that actually happened in 70 AD when Titus, the Roman general, came in with his armies and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. But then Jesus is going to say things that simply cannot be satisfied by the events of 70 AD. Like, for instance, the return of Christ in glory and the sign of the Son of Man in the heavens and the sun and the moon and the stars all going dark. That didn't happen. Armageddon, that that didn't happen. The day of the Lord stuff, that That didn't happen. So while 70 AD is a good precursor to what Jesus is ultimately saying is going to happen, it's not the completion of it. So let's start reading at chapter 13, verse 1, and you'll see what I'm saying. So as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, Behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Isn't this a great temple? I mean, after all, 
these magnificent stones have been up here ever since the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And then the Romans came in and our Edomian king Herod started increasing and improving the temple. And look at the shape it is in now. This is a great building. Are you impressed, Jesus? After all, you said it was your house. You said your house was going to be a house of prayer. So it's yours. Look at it. Isn't this great? And he said, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. The destruction of the temple in all of its magnificence. So we're talking about somewhere near 30 AD at this point. When Jesus says this, when Jesus is being sacrificed. A mere 40 years later, that exact thing happened. That exact thing happened in time, in history. We know that it happened. It's written about by so many Middle Eastern historians. The destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. We know who the Roman general, who the leader was, and we know that it actually happened. This is Jesus, again giving evidence of his absolute authority. That this temple worship that is all about Moses is going to be destroyed completely. So what happens, verse 3, and as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately, saying, tell us When will these things be? He's just said, this temple, the magnificent building, is going to be utterly destroyed. Of course, the next question is going to be, when? When's that going to happen? Next week? When is this going to happen? Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? So they've asked him, when is the temple going to be destroyed? And when are all the things that you've talked about, all the things that you've taught, when is everything going to be fulfilled? Not destroyed, not done away with. When is it actually going to be accomplished? What are the signs that it's about to be accomplished? And that's when Jesus launches into a long treatise on what's to come. Now, through the years... People have interpreted both Matthew 24 and Mark 13, and they have developed all kinds of books and programs and DVD series and all kinds of prophecy things. I'm going to see if we can kind of simplify it a little bit and just read what he actually did say, and then I think it's going to be obvious when he reaches out into the future and back into the past. What we're going to try to avoid doing is speculating or reading the book Left Behind. (laughs) Okay, did I make that clear enough? Jesus began to say to them, here's the first thing, first importance. See that no one misleads you. Okay, so what does that tell you right away? People are going to talk all kinds of stuff. People are going to say all sorts of things. See that nobody misleads you. I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you in advance what to expect, what's coming. And in so doing, sometimes he's going to say directly to them, this is what's going to happen to you. 
but you can also see that some of the things he says seem to apply to the church generally and future generations of Israel. So it's not always the immediate audience that he's talking to. See that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name. This is really important again. How many times have I used the example, the cop at the door, open in the name of the law. I want you to see that name means authority. Many are going to come and claim to have my authority. And they're going to say, I am he. And they're going to mislead many. By the way, the word he is added by the translators. Many are going to come and say, I am. Okay, why are they doing that? Because that's the name of God. God who said, I am that I am. That's a proper name of God that only God can use. I exist because I exist. I give no reason, rationale, or excuse for my existence. I am because I am. And people are going to come around and say to you, I am. And then because he knows people and he knows what's in people's hearts, he says, and they're going to mislead people. I've made the comment several times through the years, but it's still true and growing in trueness. When I was out in California, it seemed like there was a nut on every corner. That didn't surprise me. What surprised me is that every nut had at least five other nuts who would listen to them. Because you can say just about anything and somebody will believe you. Somebody will follow you. People get on YouTube. I explore YouTube all the time. People get on there and make all kinds of pronouncements that the Bible doesn't say. Lifting themselves up, making themselves important, saying all kind of Gnostic things. And then other people will follow them. It is astounding to me. It is amazing to me that you can watch absolute rank heretics standing in so-called churches on giant platforms putting on circus shows and yet they'll have three, 4,000 people. 5,000 people. They need cops to keep the traffic coming and going. And I think, how? Why are you listening to him? He's telling you nothing that's of any value eternally. Well, Jesus said that was going to be the case. People were going to show up and say, listen to me. I know stuff. I am. And they're going to deceive Many. Don't be deceived, Jesus said. Verse 7. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that's not yet the end. How many of you here have ever read the book or watched the movie of the Left Behind stuff? Okay, a few hands went up. I'm embarrassed for all of you. Um, (laughs) Part of what they try to play up is the idea that wars and nation against nation and brother against brother and earthquakes and famines in diverse places, that those things are part of the coming of the Lord, that they're going to increase in number and intensity, and so you should read those things as this is the beginning of the end. Jesus says those things are going to happen. That's what the world is about. Don't be frightened. That's not the end. In fact, what he's about to say is if you really want a sign that the end is coming, 
how about the sun, moon, and stars go dark, and the sign of the Son of Man appears like lightning in the sky? When that happens, now you know to run. Before that, don't worry. The, the world is going to roil. The world is going to rock and roll the way the world is going to go. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be famines. There's going to be wars. There's going to be people against people. That's the way the world is. So he says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be frightened. Those things must take place. But that's not yet the end. Verse 8, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. And there will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now that language of giving birth is language that you find not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament as a sign of the tribulation, the time of trouble. That it's going to be like a woman bent over in labor. And that image is of all men who are on the earth bent over holding their sides in such pain like women about to give birth and so he picks up that language and says all these things the wars the rumors of war the nation against nation the famines the floods the earthquakes that's not the end that's all like birth pangs but it's not yet the birth that's coming verse 9 but be on your guard for they will deliver you to the courts And you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony against them. So I think that's a statement directly to his disciples, the ones that are with him, especially the fact that he says you're going to be flogged in the synagogues. I don't think that applies in any way to the church. The church doesn't meet in synagogues, nor are we regularly flogged in synagogues. And so I think he's talking directly to them and saying, there's going to be difficulty in life. There's going to be wars and famines and earthquakes, and you're even going to suffer persecution. There's going to be tribulation in your life. Be on your guard because those things aren't the end yet. Even though it's going to get bad for you, that's not the end yet. Just expect it. I've told you in advance, that's what you should expect. So verse 10, he says, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Before the end can come, the gospel has to be preached to all nations. By the way, you get to the book of Revelation, and there is an angel flying in the heavens between heaven and earth, proclaiming the everlasting gospel. So for those people on earth that the church just doesn't quite get to, there's going to be an angelic announcement of the gospel, not for the purpose of saving people, but for making everybody left on the planet guilty because they've heard the news. They've heard the gospel. So God is going to guarantee that what Christ said here is absolutely going to happen. Even if we humans don't accomplish it, it's going to be accomplished. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. By the way, in the world in which we're living today, with the World Wide Web, with the fact that you can type stuff on the web in English, 
and then it'll be translated automatically to whatever language you're sending it to. At this point in time, I would say there's not many pockets or corners of the planet where the name of Christ has not been heard. It's been announced. The preachment has gone out, and, and, I, and I think in the last couple of decades, it has gone out with much more rapidity and much more widespread than it ever has. And the gospel is being preached to all the nations. So verse 11, again, I think he's talking directly to them. He's told them, you're going to be flogged in the synagogues. You're going to stand before governors and kings. And when they arrest you and they deliver you up, do not be anxious beforehand about what you're going to say. But say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. As he says this to them, the Holy Spirit has not yet been given to them. Jesus says after his death, burial, and resurrection, he tells them to stay in Jerusalem, reside there until they are imbued with power from on high, then go out and start preaching. They haven't received the Holy Spirit yet, but they've been promised the Holy Spirit. They've been promised the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Now Jesus includes as part of that promise that when you speak, when you're arrested, when you have to give an answer, when you have to give a defense of me, don't think about what you're going to say in advance because at that moment the Holy Spirit is going to take over your tongue. You're going to speak the things that I would have you say. Meanwhile, verse 12, and brother will deliver a brother to death. And a father will deliver up his child. And children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death. Don't get any ideas. You're the good one. Okay. All right. Just. <laughs> That's how bad it's going to get. It's going to be so bad eventually that people are just going to hate everybody else. Now, what are we seeing right now going on in the world? Not only do we see people breaking off into tribes and groups and hating every other group that isn't them, but we see people being divided by rich and poor, the 1% and the 99%. We see people being divided by political class, by Democrat and Republican. We see people being divided, oh, just recently, divided by male and female. Really big right now with what's been going on with the Supreme Court nomination. People are being separated by race. People are being separated by religion. People are being separated by everything, even generations. The kids these days are being taught your parents don't know anything. They're just old and stupid. The Bible says to pay attention to old people because they actually know stuff. They've actually lived long enough to collect enough experience and knowledge that you can save yourself a lot of trouble by just listening to them. They know what they're talking about. But society today says old people don't know nothing. It's about young people. People are being systematically divided by every category you can possibly think of. Jesus said that's going to happen. 
People are going to be divided till it's brother against brother. People are going to be divided until fathers are giving up their children and children are rebelling against their fathers. Families are going to split and break. Verse 13, and you, you will be hated by everyone on account of my name. That's a reality, isn't it? Amen. You can go through your life, and as long as you just go along to get along, or as we said out in the driveway, fake it till you make it. If you just get along with folks and say, oh, I'm no different than you, and I have the same feelings you do, and I have the same beliefs that you do, and I'm, then you're going to get along fine. But mention Jesus. Say, I can't do that. I'm a Christian. And you're immediately going to be hated. Why? Because your Christianity is like a great big red flashing neon sign that screams God exists. And he's a judge. And Jesus came to the planet and you don't believe him. And they don't want to hear that. They got rid of Jesus. They'll get rid of you. And you will be hated by everyone on account of my name. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. That's one of the phrases that is the reason why in the development of Calvinistic five-point doctrine, the P in TULIP is perseverance of the saints. Because a real saint, a true saint, a genuine blood-bought saint will persevere to the end, not because of our own power, but because the power of the Holy Spirit within us will not let go of us, and therefore there's nothing the world can do to us that will ever make us recant our testimony. So he says you're going to persevere to the end, and the one who endures to the end, he'll be saved. But, now here's where he gets all eschatological. Up until now, he could have been talking about 70 A.D. He's talking about things that are going to happen to his apostles, being flogged in synagogues, being delivered up to governors, being arrested. He's talking directly to them, but at verse 14, he suddenly makes a leap, a time shift, and says, but when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where it should not, and then Mark adds, let the reader understand. In other words, Jesus is saying something now that's going to take a little comprehension on your part. So understand that when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the temple, then let those who are in Judea specifically flee to the mountains. Okay, now I need to emphasize this again. Matthew 24, Mark 13 are talking about Jews to Jews, about Jerusalem, about Judea. It's not about the church. Don't try to force the church into these contexts. Jesus says those that are in Judea have to flee. Why? Because the abomination of desolation is in the temple. The temple is in Jerusalem. So this is located at Judea, in Jerusalem, and among the Jews. So don't try to force the church into it. What's the abomination of desolation? Where do we find that phrase? As soon as he says that, they're 
internal gears, their memory of scripture is going to go directly to the book of Daniel. Because Daniel talks about the 70 weeks, and then he talks about the little horn to come, and then he talks about the abomination that makes desolate. In other words, it is a pagan symbol or sign or person who is going to stand in the temple who does not belong there. Now, in the Greek, it's given a masculine quality, leading people to believe it's a person, because Daniel certainly describes the abomination of desolation as a person. When you see this abominable thing in the temple, then that's your sign. You're asking me, what are the signs of these things? Okay, there's going to be all kinds of trouble in the world. The world's going to be full of trouble, and it's going to wax worse and worse. But those are just birth pangs. But when you see this, run. When you see this, get out of Jerusalem. Now, the most popular historic figure that people point to when they want to defend anything other than a premillennial view of this passage. I hope everybody understands what I mean by that, that you believe that there is an actual literal thousand years coming and that Jesus returns before the millennium, therefore pre-millennial. Any other reading than that, the most popular people, the most popular person that people will point to, that wasn't as easy to say as you might think. The most popular person that people will point to is Antiochus Epiphanes, who was on the planet just a couple hundred years before Jesus, and he did, in fact, erect an altar to Zeus in the temple and sacrifice a pig on it. That is a complete desecration of the temple, and so people pointed to that as, there's what Daniel was talking about. There's that abomination of desolation. It has completely desecrated the temple. That's the time of the Maccabean Rebellion. That little bit of history that I've just described to you, you can read in the book of 1 Maccabees. It's one of the intertestamental books. But then Jesus, 200, more or less, years after Antiochus Epiphanes, speaks of the abomination of desolation as future. He casts it out into the future. So can Antiochus Epiphanes be the abomination of desolation? He could be a type and a shadow of it, I suppose. But he can't be the one because Jesus didn't point backwards to it and say, there it was. He points to the future and says, you want a sign of when these things are going to happen? Well, when you see this, so it's future to him. When you see him, when you see the abomination standing in the temple, the thing that is abominable to God, that makes the temple utterly desolate by his very presence. When you see that, run! Get out of Jerusalem. Get out of Judea. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. By the way, if you know your book of Daniel at all, you know exactly where to flee because there are three places that the Antichrist is said not to get. And they're all in the mountains beside Jerusalem, Ammon and Moab and Edom. That's where you go. Let he who reads understand. Let him who is on the housetop 
not go down or enter in to get anything out of his house. In other words, get out. Look, if you're standing in a house and it's suddenly on fire, and I don't just mean there's a little fire in the corner and it might spread, so you might put it out. I mean, you wake up in the middle of the night and your bedroom is engulfed in flames. Are you going to start thinking about what to grab? No, you're going to think about get out. Go get out. Well, that's what Jesus is saying. If you happen to be on the housetop when that happens, don't go down and get stuff. Just get out. Let him who is in the field not go back home to get his cloak. If you're in the field and this is happening, get out. Just go. But woe to those who are with child and those who nurse babies in those days. That's going to make the journey even more difficult. But go. But get out. And pray that it does not happen in the winter. Okay, now he's even saying, you know it's coming. You know it's going to happen. You know you have to flee. Now pray to God that it's not made even worse by the fact that it's happening during the winter. In the book of Matthew, Matthew includes Jesus saying, pray that your flight isn't on the Sabbath. That's because he's writing to a Jewish audience. And to a Jewish audience who are keeping the Sabbath, just pray to God that that day when that happens, when that abomination is in the temple, pray it's not on the Sabbath because that's going to cause you an enormous crisis of conscience. You're not going to know whether you should flee or is that work? And I'm not supposed to work on the Sabbath. What do I do? He said, pray to God that it's not on the Sabbath. Pray to God that it's not in the winter. It's going to be difficult for women with babies. And if you're in the field, don't go get a coat or anything. Just leave. Because the abomination has taken over in Jerusalem. But pray that your flight is not in the winter. Why? Verse 19 is why. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of creation which God created. Until now... And never shall be. So he just said, reach back to eternity past, when God created everything, come forward to the now, and then out into the future. In all of that time span, there's never been anything like what's going to happen at that moment. Run. Get out. Now, this is the thing that we call the great tribulation Folks will say to you, uh, and rightly so, that Jesus has said, in this world you will have tribulation. And they sometimes use that to discount the idea of the great tribulation. It's true, and Jesus said it, and he meant it, that in this life you're going to have some tribulation. Anybody want to testify? Life ain't always easy. Life is difficult. We're going to have some tribulum in this life. The word is thalipsis. It's a picture word. It's the word that's used for taking a rug and hanging it over a rope and then beating it to get the dust out of it. It's a time of tribulum. 
And he says that time of tribulum is unlike any other time of tribulation. In fact, it's so bad, it's unlike anything that has ever happened or is ever going to happen. That's how bad it's going to get. So get out of Jerusalem, he tells his followers. And, verse 20, it's so bad that unless the Lord had shortened those days... No life would have been saved. It gets so bad at that point as the tribulation is spilled out, as the day of the Lord comes to fruition, that if God didn't shorten it, nobody'd survive. This is why I think Daniel takes the time to tell us how long it's going to be. It's a seven-year thing. The book of Revelation divides that seven years into two periods of three and a half. The last three and a half years are the worst of the wrath of God, the day of the Lord stuff, culminating in the return of Christ and the battle of Armageddon where the blood flows to the bridles of the horses. You don't want to be here for that. You don't want to be part of that. Jesus said it's going to be worse than it's ever been. Okay, one question, and then remember that I just said that because I want to ask the question, why? Go ahead. I think you had just touched on it on whether or not the church will be present during the time of Jacob's trouble. Um, we will not be. You just used a really good phrase. You said the time of Jacob's trouble. Uh-huh. Because that's what Jeremiah calls it. Uh-huh. He calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. It's not the time of the church's trouble. Daniel talks about the time of tribulation such as never was or ever would be again. Jesus picks up that exact language that Daniel prophesied and Jesus casts it into the future. But it never changes the characteristic of it being the time of Jacob's trouble. And the church will have been gone by then. The church is gone by then. The church is the bride of Christ. Just as a big theological concept, if Christ hung on the cross and took the wrath of God on behalf of his people, could his people then be here on the earth to endure the wrath of God? That's like double jeopardy. So the church, the bride of Christ, is at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's Revelation 19. And if you read Revelation 19, not only is the church at the marriage supper of the Lamb, but while we're there, all this stuff is happening on the planet. So clearly the church is removed from it, but it happens because Jesus is talking to his Jewish audience, his Jewish followers, about Jewish things that are happening in Judea, in Jerusalem, talking about the temple. When you see the abomination of desolation in the temple, then flee from Judea. He's talking about what happens to the Jews. Why? Now I finally got back to my question. Because Israel has remained in a constant state of rebellion since the day that God chose them and brought them out of Egypt. And finally, the thing that all the prophets have prophesied, that ultimately God is going to punish them and then renew them, and then put a heart of flesh in them, and then put his spirit in them. First, there has to be judgment. First, there has to be the punishment that has been building up ever since they were brought out of Egypt. That punishment has been building and building and building in their hard-heartedness and in their rebellion and in their sin. And the answer to why is there a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, the one-word answer is sin. 
God is either going to utterly forgive through grace in Christ or he is going to judge sin. And that judgment, once he gets going, becomes a time of trouble such as never was or ever will be again. So bad that the people who were left on the planet, who the book of Revelation says weren't written in the Lamb's book of life, those people are still on the planet. And when Christ returns, they run to the caves and the dens of the earth and cry to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from him. Hide us from his wrath because it's going to be that bad. Now, it's hard for us to imagine anything quite that bad, but Jesus promised it was going to happen. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. That's the church, right? No. No. Remember this whole context is about Jerusalem, is about Israel, it's about the Jews. You go back to Isaiah, and Isaiah refers to them as Jacob my chosen, Israel mine elect. When Jesus is talking to his Jewish followers and disciples, and he uses the word the chosen, ask anybody on the planet right now, ask anybody, who are the chosen people of God? What are they going to say? The Jews. Everybody knows those are the chosen people of God. That's planet Earth. They are the chosen, they are the elect. That language is even used in the Old Testament. When Jesus was talking to them, there was no church, nor had the church of Gentiles ever been referred to as elect. Therefore, they would have seen him as saying, you, you who are the elect, for your sake, he's going to cut the days short. Otherwise, no one's going to be saved. And then, at that point, If anyone says to you, behold, here is the Messiah, the Christ, or behold, he's over there, don't believe him. For false messiahs, false Christs, false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order, if possible, to lead the elect astray. Take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance so there's a time of trouble coming they're going to have to flee when it happens and Jesus says when you see it happening recognize that I'm still in charge I told you in advance this was going to happen I revealed all this to you so don't start thinking that somehow you have fallen out of the will of God this is the very will of God for Israel for the Jews and for his elect next week we'll pick up at In those days after the tribulation, the sun and moon will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he's going to start gathering the elect of Israel. He's going to gather them from all four corners of the earth. He's going to do exactly what all the prophets have said he's going to do. He's going to gather Israel, all 12 tribes, bring them back to Jerusalem and establish the kingdom that he's going to rule over for a thousand years. So the Bible makes complete sense with itself. But I've run out of time. 
I would gladly keep going. I look forward to talking about the generation that won't pass till all these things are fulfilled. But I'll just have to toss that out there and pick it up next week because the clock is staring me down. I hope that all the eschatological stuff didn't erase all the first stuff from your memory. And remember, if it's true that Christ is redeemed you, Christ has saved you from the wrath to come, the wrath that we're reading about right now, if Christ has guaranteed that you won't be ordained to the wrath of God, shouldn't you really sacrifice to him? Shouldn't you thank him? Shouldn't you give him the sacrifice of praise? Shouldn't you recognize him as preeminent in your life? Next time you're faced with, I could do this or I could do that. Figure out which one is more God-honoring and do that. But if you'd really like to do the other one, let it go. Sacrifice it. Let it go for the glory of God. Live a life of sacrifice because Paul says, that's your reasonable service. Your body is a living sacrifice to Christ. So, so actually these two sections do kind of tie in. God the judge is coming in the day of the Lord. A time of tribulation is coming such as never was or ever would be again. Jesus has delivered you from that. What's that worth to you? Questions? No, really? Okay, I'm pleasantly surprised. All right, then, let's say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates and our ever-expanding archives. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.